to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Hello, I'm your host, Josh Janowiak. Our topic today, email marketing isn't dead. It's the gift that keeps on giving, but how do we make email that people love? We can all agree that email marketing is one of, if not the most effective digital marketing tactics. The problem is that most marketers and organizations have abused the channel, leading to depressed open click-through and post-conversion metrics, as well as a love-hate relationship with all emails. To solve this problem, we need to rethink how we connect with people via their inboxes, radically reduce the propensity of sending campaigns simply because our organizations have something to announce, and expand the KPIs that dictate success. Our co-host today, Megan Pear, AMA president. How are you, Megan? I'm well. How are you, Josh? Doing good. Thanks for joining yeah, us. thanks for having us. Also, Rebecca Dutcher, AMA president-elect. Hello. How are you doing? Great. Happy to be here. And now to meet our guest today, Michael Barber. He's the senior vice president, chief creative officer at Godfrey. Oh, hi, everyone. It's good to see all your faces again. As Josh mentioned, I'm Michael Barber, Senior Vice President Chief Creative Officer at Godfrey. If you aren't familiar with Godfrey, no total surprise. We're a team of 91 B2B marketers based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We work largely with mid-market industrial manufacturers and have been doing so for the past 71, 71? Yes, 71 years and have just an epic team of people based here in the tiny little town of Lancaster, PA, uh, working across a number of mid-market to enterprise-sized organizations. And you've been there for about a year now, right? Yeah, I'm going on month 13. I just celebrated my year anniversary on February 7th. Congratulations. And a lot of growth happening, too. A lot of growth, yes. We have added uh, six new members of the team and two new clients, uh, which is pretty rare for us. We have very, very long-term client relationships. Uh, mm -hmm. Average tenure of clients is about 11 years. Uh, longest client relationship is 34 years. So adding clients wow. is always a, an, interesting, an interesting experience for us because there's people on the team that have been here that have not seen a new client relationship, which is a very odd experience. But that speaks to your team and your customer experience. 34 years, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to one thing, and that's we know our clients' businesses really, really well, and we've mm -hmm. always stuck to this particular industry and this particular vertical um, and just built a really deep bench of experience in, in, those particular, in this particular industry, in this mid-market industrial manufacturing slice, if you will. Mm -hmm. And we have, I mean, to our credit, we have uh, two or three people that have retired in the last couple of years that are still working on client work part-time because our clients say, they cannot leave us. So uh, I think that's what it's all about. We just, um, we've really steeped ourselves in their businesses and they come back because we know them so well. And you were recently named one of Marketo's 50 Fearless Marketers. Congratulations. How did that come about? It was a big honor. The team put together this video and I've been lucky enough to work with Marketo and their platform for about the last six or seven years. And um, and they picked 50 people out of I don't know how many entries, and it's been a it's been a solid program. We've been, had exposure to CMOs all over the country, and and the chance to speak at a variety of Marketo Champion events. Um, uh, 
uh, as well as uh, several of us are speaking in two weeks at the now Adobe Summit, because as you probably know, Adobe acquired Marketo around October, November of last year. So what was Marketo Nation is now Adobe Summit. So we're all headed to Vegas in about a week and a half to celebrate together. That's great. I mean, that's a pretty big honor. That's out of marketers worldwide. Take it with a bit of a grain of salt, right? I mean, these are, we, 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 us marketers really like to scratch our own backs. Uh, and it was the first year of the program. So I'm sure it's going to get more popular and more competitive. But uh, I was really, really honored given that the, the, the marketers that joined me in this class are just a phenomenal group of people. And what has been great, probably the best, uh, probably the best thing that's come out of the program has been we get the chance to talk regularly. We have mentor, mentors from brands like GE or Uber Flip or any number of places, um, both UK, both globally as well as here in the US. And so it's been nice to have those connections and build those relationships over the last year. That's great. Well, we'll say it for you. That's a pretty big honor. Congratulations. Yes, congratulations. That is truly awesome. I did want to ask you, you presented on this topic to our local AMA chapter about a year ago. Things in the technology and online world can change so rapidly. So any major changes since you last presented to us? Well, the media loves us again. A couple of weeks ago, literally, I think it was around January time when we when we saw that 10-year challenge happening in social media. The Wall Street Journal had a headline on a, on a Saturday or Sunday, I can't remember when, uh, that said something to the effect of email, the channel that real human beings actually like. And that's a big win because literally yeah. 10 years previously, uh, almost to the day, they had published an article, email is the most reviled communication experience ever. Um, and that it was to the death of chatbots and social media. And I put those two screenshots together and just put hashtag 10 year challenge because anybody that's been working in this business has known that email has still been a thing for since 1996 when we got the advent of personal email from Hotmail, right? And just as you've seen our attention get uh, get directed towards social media and customer experience and mobile and all the things that marketers have to deal with these days, we took our eye off the ball when it comes to email. And, and much to our uh, much to our chagrin, the, the industry has really moved forward in the last few years. And, and we marketers, to a large extent, haven't kept up. On one of our most recent podcasts, The Death of Social Media Engagement, we talk about now that organic reach is down and it's so much harder to reach people through social media. Of course, it's pay to play now. That combined with all of the privacy issues, et cetera, the drama that is surrounded by Facebook and social media, are you seeing a resurgence in people going back to and putting more time and focus into email marketing? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely seeing, you know, to answer this question in the perspective of the consumer, what do consumers really feel about this channel and are they are they staying with this channel, is we have definitely over the last five or six years seen, if you will, a renaissance or a resurgence in, in the usage of the channel. So Adobe has been looking at these trends for <clears throat> five or six years as a part of their consumer insight study, which they do every year. It gets published in December. It's come out the last seven years. And essentially, it has really sort of charted the change in consumer habits from being largely shifting more of their time into social and apps to shifting that time back into email. And when Adobe has asked what is a largely global study of first world countries, what is the channel that you want to be marketed in? The number one answer for the last 
four and a four or five cycles has been email and to us to a point where in just after 2016 2017 we were at like a 67 percent marker of people saying that's the channel where i want to be marketed to now i always caveat that with understanding what happened in 2016 right we went through an election cycle that was brutal, and we've also seen a rapid change in the content and the perspective that people are taking on social media. And so I think you have to take that with a bit of a grain of salt that people likely shift a lot of, shifted a lot of it, their attention spans into the inbox because of what they were seeing in all these channels where they were already participating. We've sort of seen that normalize over the last two years. That number has dipped to and, and stayed constant between about 45 and and 55 percent uh, in terms of people self-selecting emails, the number one channel that they would like to be communicated to by brands. So I think you know if if anything, we've definitely seen a, a renaissance. It has never gone away. It's never dropped off a consumer's radar. I think the reason why it dropped off our radar as marketers is because we took our eye off the ball and looked at all these bright, shiny objects that were coming out and where we saw a lot of promise. And mm -hmm. then what we've seen is two big things happen in social. One, pay to play, only way that you get attention in the channel these days. And two, obviously, you know, geopolitical things that we are dealing with as a society um, that has caused a lot of pain uh, around people's perception uh, and, and privacy and not wanting to be monitored by bots and, and, and all of those different sort of forces coming together. And that's why they've returned back to this channel uh, that's been around for so long. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I, I hear a lot of marketers who say email is dead. And I, I would totally disagree with that. Um, for me personally, I feel that email is a little bit of my safe space. Um, you know, there's so much going on in social uh, with all the noise and the political landscape and everything that's going on there that it's just a little bit quieter, I feel, in my inbox. Um, and, and do you see that as a trend uh, that people are kind of using their inbox more as a safe space lately? I think it's that. I also think it's just that they get how to use email, right? If you think about how email is utilized, and if you guys recall back in February, this is sort of how I wrap up the conversation is around this idea of familiarity. I think we have forgot that people don't like change. Like we as a society, we as human beings, unless you're of a certain age, do not like change. We don't like to experience things that take cognitive loads that we don't want to deal with. And to its credit, one of the things I think that social media has done really well, it's allowed us to evolve these digital experiences, these experiences with our fingers and, and our eyes versus a keyboard and a mouse and a screen, if you will. And for years, essentially since their advent, these platforms have been changing sometimes weekly in terms of how you use them. How is the feed you know, developed? What's the algorithm behind it? What are we going to show you? What aren't we going to show you? Do we have a stories feature? Do we have real, you know, do we have all these different features that have been added on or copied from other social networks? Email, unlike all of those, has stayed the same. The, to create an email, new email, forward is a forward, a reply is a reply. And for most, for the most part, algorithms have stayed out of our inbox. Now that's very much changing, but it's changing for the good of the user. And I think that's why you see us turning back to this channel and we see it a bit of a savior, if you will, because it largely hasn't changed and the mm -hmm. algorithms seem to serve us versus serving an advertiser. During the presentation last year, you had mentioned Gmail being the top email service provider as far as what they were doing, how they were tweaking their inbox, the experience with sorting promotional emails, etc. Um, I had a Gmail account at the time, but since I have 
10 literally different email accounts. I was using my Apple mail primarily since then I've been inspired to try Google to, to get the whole online experience. And I've really enjoyed that is in the year's time has much changed is Gmail and Google still the top email provider. Still the number one public ISP, and for that reason, it's got the highest number of uh, of consumers uh, getting into their in their personal inboxes more than anywhere else. Um, has it uh, has it changed in the sense of how they are uh, helping brands get attention in the inbox? Certainly, and are other inbox providers like Outlook and the like changing because of them? One hundred percent. So you can think about some of the things that Gmail's done in the last six or seven months. You saw a com- almost a not a total redesign, but certainly some net new usability improvements uh, mid last year around the June, July period that rolled out over the course of the last couple of months. Those are things like top picks in your promotions tab. So it's actually looking at the newsletters or the content that you pay attention to regularly and then ranking those above. It's doing a proactive unsubscribe. So Gmail is looking at a 30-day rolling window of campaigns from brands. And if you haven't interacted with one, it's actually serving that up to say, hey, would you like to unsubscribe? subscribe. Very similar to the iOS uh, ribbon within the iOS mail app. Um, and, and then a number of things from just a usability perspective in terms of how they can help brands be seen in the inbox within that promotions tab um, mid-December. They rolled out a, a bunch of different things from a rich snippets to logos that you can include. You can show when your deal is going to expire. You can show coupon codes in, in areas next to the subject line. So they've definitely been iterating on, on the tabs experience, if you will. All of the other inbox providers seem to be going that way. Um, if we look on sort of the B2B, B side of the house and uh, you look at Outlook, Outlook over the next, well, really started at end of last year and the new UI, uh, new user experience with with uh, with Outlook has rolled out over the last two or three months. And they're doing, of course, the focused or other inbox. Um, and then we've got this whole new set of brand standards from an authentication perspective called the BIMI standards, B-M-I, B-I-M-I, brand indicator message uh, indicator status from Yahoo um, that is trying to standardize all of these look and feels across promotion tabs. And Gmail's already said they're going to adopt them. Yahoo has. So there seems to be some coalescing around standardization that's happening. That's all really come out of what Gmail has done the last few years. And I have my Gmail account set up to sync with my Apple Mail. So when I'm on my Mac, I'll just work through that. But when I'm working through Apple Mail, I'm not getting any of the benefits of that customized online experience. You do not know. But I think what you're going to see is if Apple wants to retain uh, the eyeballs on their inbox, they're going to have to start doing some of those things. So I, I firmly believe that over the next six months, six to 18 months, you're going to see uh, Apple think about what that inbox experience looks like. Because you can. Uh, there's any number of things that is good for Apple to keep people inside the inbox. It feeds their notion of privacy, right? And if you're inside Apple's inbox, you're not giving away data like you're giving it away in Gmail or the other places because let's just break the, the sort of, uh, uh, if you will, the, 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 the invisibility shield that you are actually in a completely private environment when you are in a public ISP like Gmail or Hotmail or Yahoo. Um, all of that data is being read. It's being read anonymously, but it's being read. 
Whereas I think, you know, if Apple wants to retain this advent of privacy and usage, they're going to have to make the inbox more applicable. It's also really interesting to think about some of the, the, the net, the sort of new features that you're seeing from a tech perspective inside the inbox, things like interactivity, things like the ability to do a dynamic cart, shopping cart inside of an email, and then Apple's ability to potentially connect that to wallet or to the passport, if you will, and for you to be able to check out of that experience right within the inbox. So I can totally see Apple in the next six to 12 months rethinking what their inbox experience is. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective, uh, you know, from the email provider. But as a brand, uh, that's why I think customer experience or user experience is so important for them to consider, you know, when they're designing their emails. So can you talk a little bit about why, you know, individuals should really lead with experience design uh, in their email marketing efforts? For sure. I mean, if you think about how people have been experiencing these little devices that are in our hands, right, these smartphones or even screens today and tablets, it's largely in a scroll environment. And so when I talk specifically around design in this particular channel, you have to adopt what's happening out there. And because the popularity of social media, we've all, all been trained to deal with this idea of a single skinny scroll, if you will, or a skinny based design. And so from an experience perspective, there are certain key trends or key insights that we can take away from what we see brands and what we see these social networks doing that can help us drive engagement and a better experience inside of, uh, inside of the inbox. And that's things like a single column or skinny-based layout, um, what we call the inverted pyramid, right? So you bring the eyes down the page or down the email, if you will, serving what you want people to see in this theoretical above the fold space, but just simply getting to the point, people don't have a lot of time in their day. If you have trained them to look for quick hits or quick insights or just be able to read your email campaign, they need to be able to get through that as fast as possible. Um, and if you're not the skim, or you're not ESPN, the Daily, or the New York Times, or say one of the best marketing newsletters out there, that's Ann Hanley's newsletter, right? You don't, you don't own the right to keep them in their inbox or in that campaign for anything more than a few seconds. The sweet spot's about eight seconds, depending upon which study you look at. So things like the invert, single column skinny layout, inverted pyramid, a zigzag pattern that gets people down the content in your campaign, those sorts of things provide a really, really good experience um, to ensuring that when somebody does open the campaign, you're actually respecting the medium that they're in and hopefully getting them to do what you'd like to do. I will echo that Anne has a, a fantastic email. Uh, you know, this is one of the emails that I open religiously. Uh, so anybody out there who hasn't subscribed to Anne Hanley's email, uh, make sure that you do. Uh, but I think one of the things that makes it so successful is, of course, she's, you know, really earned the trust um, and she provides relevant, uh, you know, content um, that is very valuable to her readers. So not only, you know, are you thinking about the design, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, content and why content is so important, uh, you know, when you're when you're thinking about your email marketing efforts. So is this something, uh, you know, to be designing relevant and valuable content that will help get you, you know, into your inbox and build that trust uh, with the readers? Is it going to get you into the inbox? Uh, yes and no. Um, relevant content will keep people's attention. If people are paying attention, they will be engaged subscribers. And what all of the ISPs are doing, Google, Hotmail, Yahoo, the like, Microsoft, all the major B2B brands that do this as well, Barracuda, 
um, the backend infrastructure office 365 they are looking at the subscriber level to understand how engaged each subscriber is and then making a determination of where they put you in the inbox so in terms of deliverability, yes, there's going to be yeah, certain things you're not going to want to have or certain things you're going to want to make sure you do to get yourself mm -hmm. delivered. But in the in the idea that keeping people coming back and engaged, certainly from a content perspective, there are things, there are uh, certain uh, thematics that you can utilize that hopefully will keep people engaged for as long as you're hoping them to be there. Many times when I go to a website for the first time, before I even interact, I land on their homepage and I get a, a, a light box prompt pop-up that wants me to join their email list. And I, again, I haven't even experienced anything with them. I know nothing about them. Is that really the best time to be asking people to sign up for your email and get engaged with your product? I think if, if you are shooting for averages, then by all means, just throw up that pop-up when someone first gets on the site and you'll hit averages because that's what average brands and marketers do. Non-average, those people that are sort of stretching themselves will allow a net new visitor to get to know a net new person to get to know your brand a little bit, whether it's a certain time on site, a certain amount of pages, and then pop up that modal or that toaster unit as we call it and ask for the opt-in. There are, there's actually a really, really inside of Ann's newsletter a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a post from the gentleman that runs email at, I believe, the Washington Post. We'll get this link for you so that we'll include it in the show notes and whatnot. Um, and there was... There, there's, there's any number of great ways that we can be attracting newsletter signups on our sites. Right-hand rails, text links, footers, in-scroll content. Um, knowing that if a user is logged in or logged out, if they're logged in, then you're just doing calls to action for sign up. If they're logged out, then actually showing an email box, right? Because we want to respect the user's time. Um, you know, being able to do things in app in some of the syndication points, like within social media or within um, your application, right? There are so many great ways to be collecting email addresses to grow your list and, and ensure that that list is a healthy one, that just the individual toaster unit is just one of many things that I think marketers could be doing better. But there is any number of ways we can be thinking about our in-content experience or in-navigation experience to drive signups. There's literally 40 or 50 different great uh, tactics that we can be utilizing to drive sign up on site or within our application. And as far as permissions, we have to have somebody's permission to add them to our email list. Isn't that right? It depends on the country. Here in the U.S.? U.S., you can send an email to every single email address one time. It's the second email that you must have permission in order to be CAN-SPAM compliant. Yeah, I'm always curious about that because I go online, say, buy some concert tickets, and then I'm set up online and I keep getting all these emails from these concert promoters and I never opted in, at least to my knowledge, to their email list. Yeah, the U.S. just doesn't have many stipulations except for the fact that after the second email, you must have permission, of course, can spam compliance inside of the actual content of the campaign, certain requirements around the unsubscribe page, things of that nature. Things get very, very different when we look outside our four walls, if you will. You go to our neighbors to the north, they have Castle or the Canadian anti-spam legislation. You look to our neighbors across the pond in the EU, you've got GDPR. And then next year, we're going to have the California privacy laws are going to roll out. And I think what you will see, and this is a bit of a change from the conversation that we had a year ago, is a year ago, I would told you, 
the U.S. will never do anything around data privacy. And then we had Facebook and Cambridge Analytica happen. And I think what you are seeing is we will either have a state-by-state -state laws rolling out, especially amongst the blue states, and no offense to them, you just have legislators, legislators that are blue, uh, that are either independent or Democrats that are looking at privacy laws. It's one of the things that they care about. So you may see states like California roll out data privacy laws that are applicable to email. But I do think we are at that threshold of as a as a country thinking about what we what we should be doing around privacy, given everything that's happened in the last few years. And you may finally see us iterate on uh, for the good, iterate for the good around can spam in the near future. A year ago, I'd have said that was completely off the table, but I think we've sort of tipped a scale in being concerned about these things. Um, but yeah, in terms of just uh, getting that email campaign and getting permission, uh, when we look outside the U.S., you've got specific regulations that govern the ability to send that first campaign, um, depending upon which country or area of the world that you're in. Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, GDPR and the CCPA because it's something that we definitely wanted to touch on. Um, but just to reiterate, you don't actually have to, to have your business housed in California um, or the EU for those to apply, correct? That is very true. Yeah, that's one of the big things that came out of GDPR was and why all of us freaked out and worked with brands for the last year or so on GDPR is because the if you read the laws and what every regulator told us is that with the GDPR, it doesn't matter if that person is in the EU, if they're coming to your site and your site is based in anywhere outside the EU, it must be GDPR compliant. Now, I say that with a bit of a grain of salt in the sense that um, there's any number of regulators that have been very truthful and transparent with saying, we have no idea how GDPR is going to shake out. And what's also terribly, I think, concerning and, and just kind of mitigates all the positive things that came out of GDPR is it was supposed to be a unified single set of principles and, and laws for Europe. And within, what, four or five weeks of GDPR rolling out, Sweden, Denmark, the UK, and Germany had all passed amendments to it in their country. And so now you again have very a very sort of diversified landscape of laws that are happening in Europe and GDPR was supposed to help with that and it doesn't seem to be doing what it was intended to do. That being said, I do think that they will do what Canada, Canada did and that's actually put these laws into action, which is something we haven't done in the US. And I think you will see them go after companies for issues and compliance around GDPR. So we may not have a GDPR or CCPA uh, in effect within all of the U.S. yet, but I think the point is, is that you don't want to throw everybody on your email list. Why? Because at the end of the day, what this comes down to is that the ISPs are tracking every single subscriber that you put into that list. They're not doing it in an aggregate. Like we all as marketers look at email marketing metrics at an aggregate. So our deliverability rate, our open rate, our click-through rate, post-conversion metrics, all of those things are done at a holistic single number level with all our subscribers. The ISPs are looking at it from an individual subscriber basis. So no matter if you're putting hundreds of people on bot lists into your subscription database, the only thing it's doing is hurting your ability to have a long-term relationship with not only those subscribers, but the subscribers that you're going to add later because it's going to impact deliverability. And then you really are going to either have to use a boatload of money to fix your reputation 
or will not have access to the inbox in the future. Um, it, so it comes down not only to just a legal compliance, but it comes down to how you're being scored as a brand, as an email marketer inside the inbox. Because regardless if there's you're legally allowed to get into the inbox, all of the ISPs are figuring out ways to understand if you're actually doing this in an ethical way or not. Yeah, that, that's definitely key. And I think it comes down to the trust that you you build and that you have with your consumer. Um, I hear this a lot, you know, this let's just throw everybody on the list, you know, we're going to get more opens that way and kind of all the vanity metrics that, that people look at. Uh, but I think it's important to talk about that, you know, that it's not just uh, from the legal perspective, but it's also about the trust um, that you're building with your consumers and why that's that's so important to have that trust there. 100%. I mean, if you think about email, it's a one-to-one communication experience, right? We expect a level of trust in a one-to-one communication experience, right? When you're having a face-to-face conversation, there are certain societal norms that you expect from someone. And because we've been around email for so long, and it was largely built on a human-to-human connection, we're still holding on to that need to feel like it is a one-to-one communication experience. And if it doesn't feel like that, it just doesn't feel good. I mean, we're not, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at people's inbox and look at some of these emails that are coming from sales and account reps that just feel slimy. You know, and I'm talking about the ones that are like, hey, I sent you an email three weeks ago. And you're like, no, I didn't. Or this is my third attempt at reaching you. Do you still want to reach me? Do you still want to talk to me? And I'm like, no, because <laughs> I didn't respond because you're not important in my inbox, right? So, uh, you know, just in the sense of trust and behaving like a human being, I think is just something we have to keep in mind when we're delivering content into that inbox. So this might seem a little bit elementary, but could you talk a little bit about making sure, one, that you have permission to email people, because we know that still happens, and two, the importance of using an email service. I actually have a client, again, they're kind of small and specialty, but they are sending their marketing emails to prospects and even to customers from their own personal email addresses. So could you just highlight the importance of sending it through a third-party email provider? It, it, it not only protects you in the future, because here's the big issue for, for your client, and I'm sure you've told her this, is if you're sending it out of Outlook, then all of those people that are receiving your email campaigns, when they mark you as spam or they unsubscribe, that historical deliverability and that score is being registered against your core domain right? And that could impact just the emails you send on a daily basis. Whereas within an email service provider, you can do a subdomain or you can at least say this is our promotional email versus our actual email address and decipher those two. And that becomes really important long term. Now, I know a bunch of small businesses that do just that, that send, you know, info out of their Outlook inboxes and if they've got a list of 50 customers, you know, maybe that's not, you know, that's not going to be a big impact, but there's people that are sending thousands. Well, and you think about all the data that you get when you send through an email provider, like the open, the click through and all the data that you can use to measure effectively. Yep. And knowing what people are caring about, what they're clicking on, what they're not clicking on, how long are they spending, all that stuff is good insights. Let's talk a little bit about email service providers and both in the B2B and B2C spaces what are the top email providers? Because it seems like the, the players are always changing. There are always some new ones added in. We've got a MailChimp, Constant Contact, Emma. What do you recommend for, again, B2B, B2C, and different size organizations? Yeah, so if you're a mom and pop startup, small business, I'd say your best three are probably MailChimp, Campaign Monitor, 
um, uh, Acton or Emma would be a good a good mix for that sort of uh, starter company. I'd probably put uh, Keep inside there as well, which was um, formerly Infusionsoft. If you're familiar with the word, if you're familiar with that brand, um, I'd probably put them in the mix. Uh, if you're going mid market, I think that there are certain providers that could go from that serve that from top to bottom. Mailchimp also being one. Emma and the campaign monitor, as well as deliver of stack, which are one company now, certainly being able to provide services there. And then you start to blur the lines into the enterprise size clients like a Marketo or a HubSpot or something along those lines. And then when you're thinking enterprise, certainly Marketo crosses into that line and you're looking at the Salesforce, the Adobe's, uh, the responses and oracles of the world. If you're thinking of, I, I'm not gonna, I hate, I hate to be a critic, but the two things that I look at for for the the if you will the right email providers is they should have a high deliverability rate and you should be allowed to do your own authentication protocols. If they don't allow you to do that and they aren't willing to share their deliverability rate at a global level, they're probably not the right email service provider to be working with. And so I will not name names because I don't think it's fair. But if you cannot find or have a conversation with an email service provider that talks about deliverability or that you can create your own authentication protocols, those being SPF, Center Policy Framework, DKIM, Domain Keys Identified Mail, or your DMARC policy for the high volume senders, it's probably not a trustworthy email service provider. And there are certain ones, one of which you mentioned in that little question, that do not allow you to do that. And I would not recommend for that reason. Um, I will tell you this, I'll put my money, uh, if I'm gonna put my money on two platforms that are gonna be around and doing really interesting things on the spectrum of small to enterprise, on the small side, all the way through enterprise, MailChimp is killing it, like just doing incredible things. They're the one, uh, they're the one platform that I've seen done a really, really uh, focused job on improving the platform for all different size of organizations. And they integrate from a transactional perspective. They do do automation. They've got MailChimp Pro that can help you scale for large size organizations. They integrate into all the major CRMs. There's just a lot of great stuff happening over there. And for the small mid-sized companies, they, they've got services baked right in that can be helpful. Things like Facebook ad platform, obviously that gets you into Facebook, Instagram, and the like, and will extend into Messenger and WhatsApp. Um, they have direct mail integration into their platform these days. They have text messaging integrated into their platform. They seem to be just doing a lot and they seem to be remaining fiercely independent, which I think is important when you consider that they seem to be focused on their users, on the people that are using their platform versus focusing on being acquired, which is a very different uh, focus for a company that, that, that either serves its users or serves an acquisition. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the enterprise side of that spectrum, I'll put my money on Salesforce Marketing Cloud any day. They continue to invest in the platform. Yes, there may be issues, there may be challenges, but they're the one company that seems to be going after some of these small third-party mail, email-related apps and then adding it to the platform in really nuanced and cohesive ways. And I will bet money that they will be around in a decade doing crazy, crazy stuff inside the inbox.
Nice. Well, one of those things that uh, most EMS systems uh, can do is track metrics. So I want to talk a little bit about metrics uh, and really look at what is important to measure. So uh, we know there's a lot of uh, the vanity metrics, if you will, the opens, the click-throughs, those kind of things. But what are some of the key metrics that marketers should really look at uh, to measure their effectiveness? So the top-level stuff still applies. So we're talking deliverability, right? How many people are you actually getting into the inbox? Uh, We are talking open rates, how many people open, although just keep in mind, all open rates are slightly skewed because there are many, there are a lot of inboxes that when that display images automatically, and that counts the open, the way that we count the open is on a display tag. So when that display tag in the code is fired, that counts as an open. And there are certain inboxes that render your images or cache them so that they can quickly load those campaigns. And that counts as an open. Then you look at clicks. That's obviously a very important metric when you consider, when you consider is is your content landing with people? What's interesting is uh, the ISPs don't view it as a metric of engagement because there's a lot of email campaigns these days that aren't uh, not necessarily built for the po- for the click experience. You look at the skim, look at Ann Hanley's newspaper newsletter. Right? Yes, it's it's built to provide you resources, but the point of that those sorts of newsletters or New York Times or ESPN Daily or any one of the other big publications that are out there is for you to read that content. Right? So the click isn't necessarily the most dynamic metric or the the, the specific metric that I would look at in terms of engagement engagement unless you've got a very specific thing that you're looking for, looking to get clicks on. Then you consider all the post-conversion metrics, and these are what happens after the click. Do they convert? Do they put something in the cart? Do they transact? Do they get through the funnel you're trying to get them through? Um, And that's at an aggregate macro level. What I would consider things that people maybe aren't looking at as much is segmenting their subscribers and then looking at all those metrics, specifically around core segments that matter inside of this channel, one of those being your active subscribers. So these are people that interact with your brand on a regular basis inside the inbox. If it's 30-day, 60-day, 90-day window, that depends brand by brand. But slicing those people out and then understanding how they're behaving becomes a really nuanced way of looking if you're having an impact, not only at the campaign level, but also at the actual channel level itself. If there is a great place to go to look at about 60 or 70 different metrics beyond just your normal open click conversion, I would encourage all the listeners and and those people that want to take a look to go to the uh, litmuses email matrix, uh, email marketing metrics, matrix. So metrics, matrix. Um, uh, It's done by Chad White and the team over at Litmus. It breaks out short-term and long-term business impact of email on your organization and what metrics to look at. And it goes well beyond the deliverability, open rate, click-through rate, things of that nature so that you can understand not only is your individual campaign performing and impacting your business and how it's impacting your business, but also some more longer-term metrics that will understand how does the channel, all the things you're doing inside of email, impact your business in both direct and indirect ways. Has anything changed as far as best practices for best times of day to send an email, subject lines, emojis, et cetera? Sure. So a couple of things to keep in mind. Um, The best time of day is 
basically your subscriber's best time of day. And it's, you know, gone are, gone are the days, if you will, of when Tuesday and Thursday at 9 a.m. was the right time to send a campaign. You have to be looking at a subscriber by subscriber basis. Um, and the good news is, is that most of the major ESPs, uh, the email service providers, give you tools that allow you to dynamically send the email campaign based on the historical nature or behavior, I should say, of that particular email address. So Bronto, MailChimp, Salesforce, you name it. You can essentially click a feature as you're setting up your campaign and it will deliver the email based historically on when that particular subscriber has opened more often. Um, because people are reading email at different times of day in really strange places and on all these different devices, and they'd be coming back and converting when they get home. They may come back from a different device and convert when they get to their desk, depending upon what type of, what type of subscriber they are. So it really comes down to the subscriber time that works best for them. And the, and the great news is for us, we don't have to know those things. It's all machine learning and artificial intelligence that helps us create those answers. Um, on your second question related to subject lines, so I have been pontificating on my thoughts around subject lines for a long, long time. And uh, if there is a if there is a, a company or a, a place of research that's done, I think the most impactful um, that this, that's, that's done the most impactful research around this idea of subject lines, it's the team at Phrase. So P H R A S S E E. Um, Phrase is a team out of the UK. Uh, they started doing uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence around subject lines about five years ago. They have looked at 750 or so billion different subject lines and found that uh, a couple of key insights. Number one. Uh, subject line length has nothing to do, has, has zero to negligible impact on open rate. What they have found is it's usually a combination of a couple of things. Sentiment, so what words do you use in the subject line? What emotions do you convey? Um, uh, simplicity, so not length, but how simple do you say what you're trying to say? Uh, diversity, this is this idea of different strokes for different folks because you know, depending upon how old you are, what ethnic group you're from, uh, what country, what specific area of the country you're from, we say things, we use different words in different ways. Soda, pop, shook, surprised, right? All of these nuances to our language. My mom and dad are from England. They're from a part of England that literally is a 60 mile radius of its own little dialect. And they have words that are only relative to that area. So this idea of diversity is that we have to understand different segments that communicate differently. Uh, a really key example, we have a client here at, at Godfrey um, that has two key personas. One of them is a younger engineer, typically not white. The other one is an older engineer, typically Caucasian or white. And we use different subject lines to communicate within that. We've sliced the group by age and by ethnic uh, ethnic uh, group, and we use different words uh, uh, within those subject lines for the same content that's happening inside that campaign um, to try and drive an open uh, and an action from there. Uh, so you've got sentiment, sophistication, diversity. The last one, which is kind of interesting and weird for me, is that if you nail those three right, emojis will make subject lines better. If you don't nail those three or, you know, say you've got an issue and you have just a bad subject line in general that lacks focus or clarity, just adding an emoji will actually make it worse. And this seems to be the case based on the testing we're doing here and what I've heard about in the industry across all industries, including some of the more conservative ones. And I always get this question during conversations around email, well, emojis don't work in our industry. And I'm like, 
okay, tell me why. And they're like, well, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're architects, they're professionals. I was like, do you realize how many emojis they're using in their day-to-day -day language? They are accustomed to seeing these things. They're, they're everywhere. You don't think my, my sister's a pediatrician. I get more emojis from her than I think I do anybody else in my life because it's shorthand. It makes sense. They're using it, right? Um, it's just the way we're communicating today more often than we aren't is utilizing these shorthand ways of communication. So I would encourage any brand, regardless of how stuffy or comical your personas are, the people that you're marketing to are, try it, test it, see if it works, see if it doesn't. It's worth it's worthy of the time of investing to see if it makes an impact. Interesting. So how important is it to run these tests and to do different versions of the emails? I think you should be testing all the time, but you should be testing very specific segments. You should never, ever, 100% of the time, never just slice off 10% of your total list and then just run a test against generic 10% of my list because what you will inevitably have in there is a mixture of different people. You'll have VIPs that spend money with you, or you'll have somebody who never engages in your campaigns. And what those people do in the spectrum in between will result in very different things when you go to look at the insights of what those metrics are telling you. For the sake of, for the sake of making this point more applicable, if I take a slice of just all, you know, say a list of a million people, and I take 10%, so I've got 100,000 people in that list. And if 20,000 people within that subscription list are active subscribers and the other 80,000 are not, and let's say just because of the day or for whatever reason, the vast majority of people that opened were part of that 80,000 inactives that, doesn't that rarely interacts with our campaigns, and we're doing a test on a button. And let's say the blue button performs better. And suddenly we're like, ding, the blue button is the reason. That's, that's why what we should be doing. Everything's got to be blue. And we make a business case for everything being blue. You've now made a business case based on people that rarely open your campaigns. So if you're going to do a test, it needs to be on a segment. You always make a hypothesis. You slice that to active segments, returning visitors, whatever your segments are. Then you run the test and you develop insights from the test itself. Do a lot of the smaller entry-level ESPs allow a lot of that customization, or is that just for the more advanced and more expensive platforms? Yeah, I'm, it really depends on on the tool. I can tell you from even when we're looking at the small, you know, those those tools that are targeted at the startup, mom and pop, you know, new business, Mailchimp, Emma. Uh, campaign monitor, all of those have those segmentation tools built right into them, and they're very easy to utilize. They often have different names that they're using. So MailChimp uses groups, and they use the word segments. Groups are larger, segments are smaller parts of those groups. You just have to sort of get to know the tool and figure out what their nomenclature is, and then any of their tutorials, tutorials will help you understand how to get access to those segments. With all the different email service providers now having more robust sorting spam features, are there any best practices that you recommend for making sure that our emails don't get caught in all the spam filters of all the different ESPs? Sure. Um, authentication at a minimum. So always making sure you have your authentication protocols in place. Uh, the three that you've got to have, or at least the two at a minimum, are your SPF and your DKIM record, so your sender policy framework, uh, your uh, domain keys identified mail uh, uh, text-based key that goes on your DNS. The last one for people that are sending more than about a 50 to 100,000 as the threshold is the DMARC policy at a minimum. 
that will help with deliverability as long as you've built a good reputation on your domain. And then there's any number of nuances that really depend on what sort of industry that you're in. On the B2B side, we always have to be concerned with an image to text ratio. We typically test in the uh, in the 70 to 30 percentage. So 30% images, 70% text, and then vice versa, and usually see a sweet spot in that sort of area. You don't want to go higher than 70 on the images or lower than uh, uh, that or uh, or higher than 70 on, on the images because you can run into some spam traps from that perspective. But we usually test in that window. Um, size of campaign, so are you delivering this mega behemoth of a file like a GIF or something can impact deliverability. Um, ensuring that you have, um, the, ensuring that you've got all of your content behind a secure server. So Google, Gmail and the like, look to ensure that your content is on an SSL or a TLS-based server um, so that they know that the content that's coming from there is secure and, and isn't encrypted and isn't gonna carry issues with it. Um, mm -hmm. So all of those things can impact and ensure you get into the inbox. And then after that, it's a number of things. It's, are you keeping your, lists clean and hy hygienically clean so you're making sure that the people that do subscribe actually are real email addresses. There's services like Bright Verify or Inbox Pros um, that allow you to that ensure that the emails that someone types into your forms are actual email addresses. Um, making sure that people that opt out are cleaned off your list, always making sure soft and hard bounces come off of that list or you're monitoring those things. Um, when your spam complaints go up, what are the reasons that are driving those? Um, all of those little nuances can help from a deliverability perspective. And what about certain triggers in the email subject line that get emails marked as spam, such as too many exclamation points, certain words or emojis. Is that still a thing? So this is uh, this is harder to say for sure on the B2B side of things because you just keep in mind that on the on the enterprise side of an email address is an IT guy that gets to control what they're what all the email addresses receive. They can say, hey, if it has 14 exclamation points, don't don't accept the mail. They can say if it has an emoji, don't accept it. On the consumer side, it's it's less of an impact. There really is no trigger words per se. Um, there certainly are. Uh, uh, there certainly are. Um, uh, character strings or length of uh, of message that may cause some issues, but. These days, they're not really looking on the consumer side of things as a subject line, as a moniker of deliverability, but it, it's a whole different gambit on the B2B end of, end of the world. Um, what I would say is just be keenly focused on who your audience is and write for that person. How do they talk? How do they speak? What makes them think? Use the words they work, use in their industry and talk to them as if you are a human being. And usually trying to think about your content in that perspective is just the, a good way to develop content, whether it's the subject line or the actual content of the campaign itself. So speaking of the actual content, uh, one of my favorite things uh, from all the talks that I've heard you you give is when you talk about how it's our job as marketers to remove friction. So when we look at things from you know building the right content to the user experience design, how important is it for us to really you know focus on that and remove that friction in our emails? Sure, I like to. Specifically around this idea of friction in email, the first thing that you should know is what the industry tells us is people are probably spending eight to 10 seconds on average. That's about a 50% threshold of where you will have a, where you'll have a very engaged reader, anybody that's above eight to 10 seconds, anybody that's below that is sort of a skim read or non-read, if you will. That's about the threshold that you've got. 
So you can literally time how long it takes people to get your message or your takeaway by putting it in front of test groups or putting it through testing programs that say, how long does it take to read this or understand this? And if it's not within a certain threshold, you've got some friction to deal with. I think also you have to understand in this idea of friction is what do you want the user to do? Like if, if, it, if it is, I would like the user to see this title, this headline, then that should be the main thing that you are garnering attention around. And there should be nice white space around it or blue space or whatever your brand colors are, but it should allow the eyes to focus in a certain specific area. If the thing you care about is the click, then that's the thing you want people to care about. You know, hierarchy in terms of the messaging, things that matter, bigger, bolder, more nuanced, things that don't, smaller, shorter, down the page or down the email, if you will, or below the fold. So think about how someone is going to go through that content and understand what are the things that I want them to take away? How quickly does it take them to, to get that takeaway? And then I will tell you the last step in this process is all post-conversion friction, friction. The challenge is always you get someone to do what you would like them to do. And I think too often than not, we fall off a cliff after the click and we don't think like, We've nailed all this stuff, but it matters just as much of what they're doing after the behavior as it does while they're having that experience with your email campaign. So when they get to the page, is it the right piece of content that you told them about in the email campaign? How easy is it to get through those things that you'd like them to do? And also, what's the, where's, the, where's the issues that they're encountering within that sort of post-click experience that can help drive and change when you've got future people coming to that page and optimizing it in the future for different campaigns. Yeah, there's so much that goes into uh, an email and designing an email. So I'm, I'm just interested, Michael, what's your process and your team's process, uh, you know, in developing these email campaigns? What are the some some of the steps uh, that you take? And what do you go through to design that perfect email? Oh, man, uh, we've, we've tried refining this for any number of years, we used to have a 13 step process that included concepting all the way through send, and then obviously the post send things like tracking and metrics and insights. Um, we got it down to seven, but I will tell you that this varies widely by organization. Um, if I can point you in the direction, although I'm blanking on his name, I will remember it randomly. Um, the team at Progressive Insurance has probably one of the most interesting, um, one of the more interesting email processes that I've ever heard about uh, before. It's like a 35-step process that they wow. go through, but it's very detailed and it's very nuanced to their organization and it's done perfectly well and it just works. I will say that usually a standard one-size-fits-all process does not work for every organization because you have different roles, different people involved. What I will say is there's usually some key themes that help get an email through the building. One of those themes is understanding the expectations at the start of the conversation. So when we're concepting a campaign, what restrictions or lack of do we have so that we understand what we can and cannot do? Um, templates. Right? It's good for organizations to set up templates that allow flexibility from promotional and your transactional sends, but provide some rigidity around what you can and cannot do. A design system. So if you've heard of a brand guide, a design system is sort of a modern version of a brand guide that allows you to pick components 
that are part of that design system and make it really easy. So we always know a button looks like this. We always know that a logo has to be this particular size. We always know that headline fonts are like this. We always know that subheads are like this and text are like this. Um, icons, different things that help within from a design perspective. Those are all things you can put in a design system that within some of the modern tools like Sketch or Envision, you can easily bring together those concepts really, really quickly. And it's also stuff that as a brand you can share with your agencies so that they can design on your behalf as well. So having that design system in place is really important. Then from there, it's entirely a copy creative exercise. So how do you go about generating copy? What's the tone of language that you're going to use? What are the types and nuances and restrictions around titles and headlines? And then it's load into the ESP. I would tell you that any email strategist worth their grain and salt should be at least to do, able to do a basic HTML, HTML uh, development or at least make minor nuance change to that particular template to be able to serve the needs of whatever you're trying to get out there. Um, so you've got some sort of development period. There needs to be a collaborative space where you can provide feedback, whether that's within your email service provider or whether that's through a third-party tool like a Litmus and the like, or if you're using Envision inside of your organization, great tool to be able to do design collaboration around and then a so that you have a single moment of truth or a single source of truth around feedback and then sending it, testing it from a send perspective. So what issues does it have from a content perspective that may get flagged for spam and then deploy, manage, and report. That's usually the spectrum that we're on in terms of core areas of process. Mm -hmm. But there's not, there's never been anywhere that I've been, any agency or brand that's got it sort of nailed, except when they sat down and thought, okay, how does this touch all different parts of our team? And who are the people that need to have approvals or don't need to have approvals and making sure that it's nuanced at an organizational level. So now we know all of the components that make up an awesome email. What are your favorites? What are some of the organizations that do email marketing campaigns where you're just running down the list saying, oh my gosh, look at these headers. Look at all these images. I have such a customized user experience tailored toward me. Who does that for you? Oh, man. Um, if we're considering the consumer side uh, or brands that are more, you know, sort of direct to consumer, I'd say I think Warby Parker's doing some really interesting work in the space. I, I, I love a good Warby Parker email. They slim up the header. They get to the point almost you will never find a Warby Parker call to action that's ever below the fold. Um, they're usually they're using really great uh, personalization in the subject line as well as in the content of the campaign. Um, they are respecting my time as a user, I feel like. Um, they they aren't overburdening me with a lot of like cognitive load to understand what that they would like me to do inside of those campaigns. The design is uber simple. They get to the point right away. Um, Starbucks, I think, is doing a really good job, again, respecting the user's time, slimmed up header, getting right to the point, very simple calls to actions that allow the user to get to what they want to. They also utilize contextual buttons. So if you're in a phone, the buttons become order they become simpler and shorter. But if you're in a, a desktop, they become more nuanced and use better adjectives because you're typically probably in a browsing behavior. Um, on, the, on the B2B side, I'd say look at Wistia. Um, which is a video hosting platform. They do some really interesting things around eliciting the click for their video content um, on their landing pages. So having an animated GIF, testing different components of that GIF, right? Do you have a play button on top of that GIF or do you not? Do you throw in different captions on that anim animated GIF? So uh, I'd look at Wistia. Um, other brands that are doing interesting things. Um, oh man. 
Pinterest is doing some interesting things within uh, the Gmail platform. So one of the newest features that Gmail has been utilizing inside of the inbox is AMP or Accelerated Mobile Pages, which essentially allows an email to become almost like a very living, breathing microsite or landing page inside of the email itself. Mm -hmm. And brands like Pinterest are utilizing that within Gmail. Um, Oh man, there's there's a ton. The best place to go look, uh, which is one a site that I mentioned in my talk, is reallygoodemails.com. Uh, again, reallygoodemails.com. They have this cool little feature on the left-hand side of the site uh, that is all different categories of emails from welcome series, activations, different industries, and they are a team of about five or six strategists around the world that independently curate some of the best emails from a design and content perspective. They also coincidentally have a conference uh, coming up uh, mid April, I think, um, that's all about email. And there's not many conferences that do that well, minus, I think, the folks at Litmus. Um, so it's nice to see the industry having a couple specific events around this particular tactic, because we haven't had a lot of them in the past. We'll make sure to put links to those resources in the show notes as well. Those are, of course, available on our website, amawestmichigan.org. Michael, what about uh, other links and online resources? If, uh, if somebody wanted to go on, do some research about email marketing campaigns and get signed up for some great educational pieces on email marketing, any good sources, links, or resources for that? Sure. Really good emails, as I mentioned before, is a great spot. They have resources beyond just those that drop down that has just a, ro a robust area of, uh, of content around guides. They have templates. They have all a bunch of stuff underneath there. Um, they give a lot of love to other places that I find a lot of value in as well. Those are places like Litmus. Those are places like Return Path. If you're looking for anything on deliverability, Return Path. Return Paths blog is the best place to go. Um, Litmus, just, just a, Litmus just does a really good job of covering the industry itself from top to bottom, from trends, tools, insights, uh, what's working, what's not. Um, they very often run webinars that they'll do live, uh, live audits on your campaigns. Um, another good place to go on the B2B side of things, marketingprofs.com, always a great place, b2bmarketing.net is a good place for anybody that's listening in the EU. They tend to have a more EU skewed or focus. I think they're based in the UK, but a lot of good knowledge there. Um, and then often I really just look through my Twitter feed and there's a hashtag called email geeks. That is the sort of industry standard amongst us email strategists uh, of where we put our best thoughts and, and feelings about email and utilize that Twitter hashtag. It's just hashtag email geeks. And you can usually find some really great content that's shared there and you'll get to know those people in the industry that are doing some really incredible things. Awesome. Uh, Michael, anything else or any topics that we didn't discuss yet that you want to touch on before we wrap things up? I would say, uh, you know, probably the, the one we maybe haven't tackled is personalization and how much impact that's having. You know, there's uh, there's some really good uh, some really good content that that is being shared on personalization and why it matters. You know, you think about what makes an email work and it's timely, targeted, and relevant, right? That's since my days, I was lucky enough to start my career with this tiny little marketing guy named Jay Bear. I don't know if you know his name, um, but Jay was my first boss out of college and, uh, you know, he... Uh, 
figuratively beat into our head, not literally, but figuratively beat into our head the idea of timely, targeted, and relevant, and that still holds true today, and the way that we do that is through personalization. Um, there's about 27 different personalization uh, pillars or segments that you can be utilizing, um, from demographic information to interest, uh, and emailmonday.com has got a great breakdown of what those uh, segmentation pillars are, um, and we can make sure you guys have the notes, uh, the, the, the link in the show notes there. Um, but what people are looking for is an email that speaks to them. So if we can be timely, targeted, and relevant and not creepy, that's the sweet spot. That's delivering it at the right time with the right sort of content that, that meets their needs, that doesn't feel like it's just something out of left field, that it's the when they're thinking about it uh, and, and it's nuanced for that user. And let me just give you like a sort of like a, uh, a really concrete example of what I'd love to see brands do. When you in retail, which is probably the most over, is the brands, the, the category that overuses this channel to you know to its detriment as well as its credit i would just love brands to get to know my buying behaviors as a, as a sign of when i'm looking for things and when i'm going to be buying and you know i buy things at, at very religiously at different times of the year and my, my my thought is why aren't we just delivering the content when somebody's starting to raise their hand versus just bombarding my inbox. Um, and there's certainly a case to be made for um, those people that are opening regularly, by all means, deliver that content every single day if they're opening. You know, I can I look at certain retail brands and certain brands in general every single day because I love what they're doing in the inbox. But there's a huge swath of consumers that are very patterned in their buying behaviors or in their decision behaviors. And we've got to figure out ways that and they're and with the tools that we have at our disposal, we can be delivering things in, in better, more timely targeted ways than we ever have done before. But we have to get to know our subscribers at the subscriber level by segmenting them, by understanding their needs, by understanding what they're looking for and when they want it. Because if we don't take the time to do that, we are not being timely, targeted, and relevant. And I would just encourage us to really take a deep dive into our personalization efforts so that we don't borderline creepy, but that we do deliver really interesting and timely, targeted, relevant content inside of the inbox. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, you can Google any, you know, 2019 email marketing trends. And uh, the top priority right now is that tension between personalization and privacy, and really how we use uh, individuals data ethically and make sure that we're driving, you know, the experience that's meant for the consumer. So I think that's a, a fantastic point to mention, we really have to guard their data and have the respect uh, for our consumers data and how we use it. Yep. And at the same time, we have to understand that every single time Amazon does something well, our expectation as a consumer, no matter what our experience is with your brand, levels up. So because we're all prime users, because we've yeah. all been accustomed to having stuff delivered in a really nuanced way from Amazon, we benchmark that as a retail experience. When we shop online, if it takes more than three clicks, we're like, why is this? Why is this? Why isn't this as easy as Amazon? When we go in store, why isn't your shipping as easy as Amazon? Right. So why aren't your emails as good as Amazon? Right. The impact of Amazon is not just on retail. It's at the experience level that they're creating for the consumer and impacts almost everything we do in marketing. And if we're not thinking about that as a, whether we're this podunk startup or this enterprise size organization, we're going to get left in the dust because it is much easier for a challenger competitive a challenger brand to mm -hmm. insert itself with really good tools and deliver a nuanced Amazon-like experience and level up our expectations than it is for some of us to be able to do that. And until we 
figure that out, we're going to be challenged as brands to really meet the needs of our subscribers. Yeah. Amazon really has ruined it for a lot of us. I mean, it's just so easy to go online, order what you need, get it a couple days later. Your order history is there. They're sending you suggestions based off of products you've researched. You have reviews there. I mean, it's it's truly an awesome experience. And I'm torn because I like to, to shop locally and support local businesses whenever possible. But now with time being at a minimum, it's so much quicker, so much easier to go online. And when groups like Amazon are just serving up what you need, it's so much easier just to do that. So it'll be interesting how long it takes other big organizations and brands to, uh, to adapt more to that model. All right, Michael, before we let you go, three questions to get to know a little more about you. First, who or what inspires you? Uh, you know, I, I think it comes down to a, a couple of key things for me. Uh, from eight to five, it's my team. I love working here. These people behind me that you've seen walking behind me inspire me every single day with what they do, who they are, um, and the work that we get to work on together, even though some of it can be super mundane. Um, my circle, you've got to have your your fans right behind you. These are people that, uh, that you've cultivated over the years through friendship, through colleagues, but those people that are cheering you behind you, no matter on your rough days, on your good days, on your bad days, but who's your circle? My family, my mom, my dad, my sister, bar none, maybe the biggest inspiration in my, in my life and continue to be on any given moment, and then my partner. So it comes down to those four things, my team, my circle, my family, my partner. That's where I look for inspiration. Number two, what is your favorite business-related or marketing-related book? Minus Harry Potter, I would say there are two that I think have really made me think in the last couple of years. And I think that for me, that's that when I go, oh, like this is really good. When I have to like think about things and not just be checked out of a book, that's when I know I'm reading something that, that impacts me. And the two books that have done that, um, one is a short read and an easy read and one is a long read. And I've read it twice and I still am like trying to figure it out. So the first one is by David C. Baker and it's called The Business of Expertise. If you're not familiar with ba David, he has a great blog on his on his website, davidcbaker.com, I think it is, um, where he talks about the challenges that agencies and marketers face today. Um, and his book specifically talks about how you develop expertise in your field as a consultant, a freelancer, all the way through an agency or a marketer. And what I love about David is he truly has a framework for thinking about how do you develop an expertise in a in, in your work? How, how do we value expertise? How do you build your expertise? How do you get paid for it well? And how do you differentiate yourself against the competition? It's an easy read. You can pick it up and just do one chapter and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, do the next one. It's only about this thick. It's a small read. Definitely would encourage people to go check out that one. The second one, which is not so much an easy read, but one that just makes me think and one that I love and has really guided my life for the last two years is Principles by Ray Dalio. You probably have heard his name mentioned in, in recent months or the past year or so because Jack Dorsey and like all the Twitterati and Silicon Valley elites love Ray Dalio, but i knew this book before them. So I get to own this, this, <laughs> this, this recommendation. Um, Ray Dalio um, founded one of the most successful financial companies, investment firms in, in the world. And this is his essentially 60 years of experience uh, starting from when he was a kid owning his own little like baseball trading company shop thing on the side corner of a street in Long Island, all the way through the success uh, of his, uh, the success of his life in business. And he focuses on this idea that we need to have principles that guide our life, both in work and in, in, and in, in our personal lives that we use as a lens for decision-making. 
What I love about it, it has really allowed me to understand to say, what are the things that I value as a part of my life? And it makes it abundantly easier when you have a set of principles that guide you for you to make decisions of what you're going to pay attention to and what you're not going to pay attention to, or what makes you tick and what's not going to make you tick. So you can eliminate the distractions that are happening on any given day. So David C. Baker, Business of Expertise, and Ray Dalio's uh, principles, but be prepared for Ray's book because it's like this thick. Well, it's like it's like this. And I have read it cover to cover twice. And there are still parts that I have with like sticky notes where I'm like, I need to read this more and again to understand it because it is meaty um but also ray does a really great job on instagram um which i find great because he's like a 70 year old guy putting his principles on instagram (laughs) um he does a, a an every other day sort of a little tidbit from the book and does a short snippet on why that's important for your life right now and if you didn't want to read the book you could get most of the big takeaways from his instagram profile Nice. Those are great recommendations. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a Cliff Notes out there somewhere. And I thoroughly love that you are a Harry Potter fan. All I own all seven movies. I've watched them back and forth. I still have the books. <laughs> I have the British version of the books. We have a lot of Godfreyites that are big Harry Potter fans as, as well. Matt Kavik, who's one of my senior copywriters, is obsessed. And maybe the first or second question that he will ever ask you as a new team member here at Godfrey is, what house are you from? <laughs> <laughs> what house are you from, Michael? I'm Gryffindor. I have to tell you guys, our new house has a little cubby and closet under the stairs. And when we first looked at it, my son, who's 14, said, oh, my gosh, mom, I can live under the stairs like Harry Potter. (laughs) That is awesome. I've actually heard that there are mock Harry Potter Quidditch tournaments. Yes, I've heard of them in Lancaster, so I know that there is one here. All right, Michael, last question. If you could boil down what you've learned in your career to one thing or one piece of advice for others, what would that be? Uh, This is a combination of, uh, I think, uh, things that I learned from my mom and dad because they owned a business for 26 years and and Jay Bear, who was my first boss out of college. And and, uh, it's coalesced into a a phrase of things that are for, or should I say, something that is four phrases, and that's work hard, never, ever stop learning, be good to people, and the money will follow, or the rewards will follow, or the accolades will follow, whatever is the thing that makes you tick. So work hard, never, ever stop learning, be good to people whatever you want will follow. Um, and that seems to have steered my career for years. And I've been lucky enough to be, uh, had some great mentors and great shops that I've worked for and just been in, I think, the right place at the right time. And and it, that, that advice has steered me well since, you know, sort of learning about it from my parents. And then also Jay really sort of coalescing it down to those words uh, as I got into my career. Love it. Great advice. Michael Barber from Godfrey. Again, thank you, Michael. Do you want to throw out the website there and some contact details in case people want to get a hold of you if you're all right with that? For sure, www.godfrey.com. And if you want to say hello, I'm at Michael J. Barber pretty much everywhere online. And what about any upcoming speaking engagements in case people want to check you out while you're out and about? I am. I, between now and the end of the year, about 10 to 12 different digital summits. I will be at Marketing Profs uh, B2B Forum in DC. Uh, I will be at the Insight Conference here in Lancaster um, and a couple of other uh, uh, shows like Dreamforce um, and Adobe Summit over in a week and a half. So we'll be all bouncing all over the place. I usually keep people up to date on, on social, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram, where, the, where I'm going to be. 
And now you're going to have thousands of people coming up and saying, you know, I heard about you on the Markers and Motion podcast (laughs) now that you're so famous. Right. Yes. Well, thank you, Michael, so much. We appreciate all the great information. And it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. I I love coming up and talking to you guys. So hopefully we'll be able to do it again in the near future. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is AMA.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative. Be bold. Set your marketing in motion.